Hey, this is Randall, a.k.a. Randy Voss, Extension Fruit Crops, farming on the side, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. So uh, to put you on the spot here, what is your definition of horticulture? Wow, my definition of horticulture. Um, basically, it's uh, any crop, ornamental, edible, uh, that is kind of smaller scale, more uh, less processing. Um, you know, in, in some uh, hort departments and other states actually put turf in the crop sciences department, but hmm. I put that as a horticulture crop. So anything, you know, non-agronomy, basically, that's plant-based is what I would throw in as horticulture. So... so- so if if I grew rough blazing star in my yard, that's horticulture. Oh yeah. But we grow it in our field, that's agriculture. No, that's we'd still call that horticulture. Still horticulture. Yeah, because you know, growing tomatoes commercially is horticulture. Wow. So what's not horticulture? Just corn and beans, that's not horticulture. Yeah, alfalfa, oats. Wheat. Any cereals is non-horticulture. Some people put t- potatoes as a agronomy versus horticulture, but I classify as horticulture. So, what well, I Ken, are you understanding the difference here? Because I'm not at all. Um, I had a really uh, sarcastic comment to make, but I'm biting my tongue so hard right now. <laughs> oh, no. and, please, and, please do and, and, <laughs> bite your tongue. Yes. Yeah, uh, no, it's it is interesting. Why why the distinction for those species compared to? Uh, oh, I'm biting my tongue. Uh, <laughs> Luke Fritch, you know what I want to say right now. I don't know, but in greenhouse to be horticulture too, you know. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, with a lot of those crops, I, I think there's just a lot more intensive management. Basically, is the difference between agronomy and soy. And core, not that that doesn't have its own challenges. Trust me, that's got not easy to do either. But you know, when you got a fruit or a vegetable or an ornamental flower or turf commercially, is just there's a lot more things that can go wrong in yeah. general. Well, so the most amazing thing about you, and there's a bunch of things. <laughs> <laughs> this guy used to drive an hour, fifteen minutes one way for work every Dedication. day. That he you worked at uh, at DMAC in Ankeny, yeah. But you you're like a neighbor of ours on the farm, indeed. And I just couldn't believe when I found out. I was like, oh, DMAC and Newton. Dad was like, no, he goes to Ankeny. I was like, no, wow. Nobody that doesn't live in LA commutes for an hour and fifteen minutes. But you're <laughs> definitely not in LA around here. You're the real traffic jam going yeah. getting up through Linville. <laughs> the, the Puri traffic. Jam. Oh man, dude, I. Um, there, there's some, sometimes you follow a lot of cars behind a tractor or combine in harvest season. That's <laughs> that not, is, that's an Iowa traffic is, jam. Dude, the other day I was going around that S curve between here and Pella, right? Those, okay. those that like squiggle sets, S yeah. yet. And this poor biker was going like four mile an hour. And you know, with bikers, they're supposed to have the full right away yeah. of like a full lane. And I was like, also biting my tongue. <laughs> I'm like, this is not. This poor guy's going against uh, against the wind uphill, and it was like so slow. So I passed him. <laughs> Nick's like, "There's a better way. <laughs> you could drive. <laughs> Just get- grab the back of my tailgate." <laughs> but so I start passing him, and then realize I'm going uphill, and there's a curve ahead of me. Oh well, it'll be fine. I'll pass real quick. Well, then a truck starts coming from the other way, and I was like, "Hmm." Sorry, bike. I'm moving over on your real soon. And I was that guy. I was that guy because I wasn't thinking. But nobody died. Nobody died. Well, nobody even got a ticket. <laughs> this all, was all I'm all buffs in the end. Yeah, yeah. I'm all about sharing the road, but please ask the bikes to stop at stop signs. Please. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a pet peeve of mine. You yeah. know, you're, I, was at a four, I was at the Vermeer Corner the other day. Well, actually a couple years ago. 
and I was stopped at the stop sign and I was about to turn because I was expecting the bike to stop on the stop sign because they were at the road too and they just blew right through. Hmm. So please share the road, everyone, but please then stop at stop sign. Share the road goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Rights come with consequences. Prairie Farm Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This is is what we do here. This is what we do Uh. here. Okay. So for a long time, you were a professor there and actually a gentleman who is working with us right now. Or not right now. He's gone for the day. But Clayton uh, is working What's up, with Clayton? us. Clayton? He was one of your students, and in his words, it was his hardest class. He said, <laughs> it "Doesn't shock me." <laughs> it's tough, tough love, man. Yeah. I was your soccer coach. Tough. Yeah, yeah. You got to be strict every now and then, you know. If I if if I wasn't strict, I mean, I didn't care. Yeah. Well, and yeah. and I'm sure he learned a lot. Actually, Clayton knows a ton. He knows yeah, a ton. He was well-educated. But he said your class was about soil. And oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. He was so funny. He's like, I love plants. I, I just found out I don't give a rip about soil. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in trouble then in the future if you don't care about soil. This is pretty important with plants. Yeah. How long were you in Ankeny or at DMAC? I taught DMAC oh, 15 years. 15 years. Was yep. there a difference in students from the beginning to the end? Oh, well, my role kind of changed a little bit at DMAC, too. When I first started the first three years, I I actually kind of did pseudo-extension kind of work. So I, I worked with grape growers, and then I, I taught a few classes, mostly actually grape-focused, like web-blended. And then after a few huh. years of that, I transitioned to the Hort department and became chair. But, uh, you know, the students are students, right? You know, but I, I do think there's a lot more people interested in native plants, Kind oh, of really? that. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. A, a lot of them are very idealistic about native plants when they come in. And then it's easy to say we should do all native plants, but when you live in a concrete jungle of Des Moines, you know, yeah. it, that's, not a, that's not a native habitat for plants. You know, yeah. I mean, you can still use a lot. Don't get me wrong. But it's it's tough to expect big blue stem to handle road salts and all that kind of mm. stuff. So Yeah, that's a good point. There, there's a lot more people interested in the i don't want to call it homesteading type thing you know small scale food food crops as well i think is probably the a big change in the in the 10 years yeah or 15 years you know um that's becoming quite the thing i mean there's homesteaders that are basically celebrities at this point you know and they're just homesteading well they're YouTubing no, probably because they're in social media yeah right? yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah self-employed man <laughs> You should get on social media. Well, I can see you I, starting to TikTok with your sheep. I I am on Instagram as the Iowa fruit guy. I'm the so, I'm a fruit guy. Iowa fruit. Iowa guy. fruit guy. I thought it was self proclaimed. Yeah, Iowa fruit guy. Guys, look him up. Interesting, interesting fella. He's the place to be. But you got to start a TikTok. You got to show people what you're doing. You know, there's like a rule about state employees being on TikTok. Really? You can't use. That's good. You can't use uh, state. If state things. Someone asked me once if I could take away one thing from all the people that I know, what would it be? And I said TikTok because I, I think it's like borderline a huge waste of time. That's why Hawks borderline. <laughs> well, you can you can learn a ton. My wife is a killer cook because of TikTok. Yeah, I yeah I could see cooking being good, but I also think as someone who was a teacher as well during the era of TikTok. People half learned a lot of things, yeah. <laughs> or, or or learned wrong turn, things. Turn, yeah, right. Pseudo-learned. Turns Pseudo-learned. out you can't get a you know you can't get a PhD in a thirty second video clip, <laughs> and and you can't grow plants in pure water with no fertilizer. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> crazy how that works. Yeah. So why do you think more people are interested in native plants, and when do you think that trend started hanging out? Uh, you know, I think. The irony, I think a lot of people are interested in it, but um, they know very little about it. You know, like, mm-hmm. like uh, you you walk around with a lot of the folks that are interested in it, but I ask them to name that plant and they couldn't, you know? And yeah. so, so I think a lot of people like the theory of it and they think about stormwater mitigation and, you know, native ecosystem pollinators and all that, but going the extra step of actually knowing all those plants i think is where the gap is you know we all like the theory of it and i I like the theory of you know all that as well but then you gotta you know have a business that turns a profit too oh yeah and so that's where 
think a lot of people like the theory of it and and agree with it all but then the practicality of it sometimes is where it gets a little tough and there's been a lot of in the ornamental world um we're breeding in in the you know is it a native plant when it's a cultivar you can get into that debate you know um but there's there's cultivars of big blue stem now that are more purple or mm-hmm. yeah you uh, know the, the ones that i think are the most abused are uh lupin and uh Cone flowers, yeah, purple cone flower. Yeah, cone there's flower. so many, oh, yeah. so many varieties of cone. Flowers. Yeah, there's cone yeah. flowers where you see their petals are like four inches long. And you're like, that's not normal purple. And then there's one that's like one inch long. And I'm like, that's also not. So, normal. so do, that, do those cultivars fit into an eco, like a native ecosystem? In your they're, opinion, they're not going to handle survival of the fittest. Let's be honest. So, mm. And around here, I mean, pale purple cone flower is probably mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. native around here it's still my favorite i know it doesn't bloom as long but i love yeah. the kind of wispy petals to it but mm-hmm. it, it's one of those things that it you know when you start to hybridize plants and some of those cone flowers are hybrids not echinacea purpurea straight mm-hmm. just like anything you know if, if you breed, breed a rose to be double flowered you're probably gonna have less nectar and all that so you're, you're you're getting a little bit farther away from what the beneficial insects and all that can benefit from but it's probably not gonna be invasive though you know yeah right not yeah. that a rose that's is, a good point but, yeah. yeah yeah man well that that's a thing with blazing stars or leatris okay. they're like real they very easily hybridize with each other Oh, am I not talking? No, dude, I'm coming up. I'm coming up on the mic. Sorry, Kent's giving me the get close to the mic signal. Well, you know, Nick Nick gives our guests all this big lecture. Now, don't make sure you don't talk like I'm lick the mic, or... basically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. There's well, some woody plants that hybridize too. Some of the oaks do. Yeah, you know, some of the service berries maybe do as well. So it's hybridization isn't all human induced. So, hmm. man, I always I wonder what it, it looked like because like. Prairie blazing star, prairie blazing star was that Leatris spicata maybe, yeah, and then Leatris aspera, the rough blazing star, and then the, what's the meadow? I can't remember the meadow yeah, one, but though those three, I guess, uh, hybridize together really commonly, like very easily. So you got to make sure your fields are far enough apart, but. It, they would have been next to each other, you know, yeah. for thousands yeah. of years. Yeah, that's you know? a good so point. it's like, you know how. What what were the original plants? Because it probably wasn't these. These are probably hybrids of well, hybrids. Yeah, I mean that's where you get like in the rabbit hole of, you know, what is native. You know, for instance, uh, I love studying wildlife, elk and you know white-tailed deer. That technically, it's believed they came over really close to the end of the Pleistocene uh, over the land bridge from Asia. You know. But yeah, we review our native wildlife, you know, and it's like how, you know, how, how far back. Do you yeah. Go? yeah. Just right. before we were here is, and, is what people think. So, so the, the term is, is flexible to some extent. Yeah, man. 19 or 1491. That's native. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great book, too. <laughs> yeah. Shout yeah. out to my dad. He's reading it for the second time after my recommendation. Wow. He liked it so much. For, and he's not listening. He's reading that. that that's, that's, that's like a, a 500 deal. page book. Randy, what percentage of books do you read versus listen to? Uh, I'm basically at 100% listen at this point. So. 100% listen. <laughs> we got an hour and 15 minute drive to all those my, years. My wife can attest if I all right, but you am not standing up, I'm usually falling asleep. So ah. yeah, it's it's kind of hard. That means me you're read. probably not getting enough sleep at night, Randy. I think I'm getting more now that I've not teaching as much. But, How old's yeah. your youngest kid? Man, my oldest is fourteen. My youngest is eight. So I got four okay. kids. So. Okay, but now they d- you don't have to like wipe their butts. So that's a big deal. You, you know, you don't have to chase oh, them around. I hope not. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, so um, with uh, oh, I was gonna say if you ever write a book, you basically have a moral obligation to make it an audio book as well. At this point, if you if you do all listening, understood. Yeah, books are great. Yeah, but if you if you wrote one. What would it be about? Because you've done so many different oh, things. Man. I'm he- I'm here to make you stutter. Oh, you know, probably some type of philosophy type thing. You know, really? Yeah, getting deep here. I, you know, I do like the Wendell Berry. I don't know if you guys know. Wow, him. I'm a big fan. I like his poetry. I like his essays. I like his fiction books. You know, Jaber Crow is my favorite fiction book. If you haven't read that, The Long Legged House is my favorite um, essay book. 
You that guys gotta, gotta read some of this stuff if you haven't. So. Or listen to it, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah, fla- yeah, poetry is a tough read. Or, oh, or sure. tough audiobook. But yeah, no, those are I that's that's kind of my style. So that's yeah. great. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's good. Okay, so you do you do farming, yep. not just row crop. You do sheep farming. Yep. Which we just talked about on this last coffee oh, really? time. Yeah. Yep, on this last podcast. Because it's become more and more popular. F- 50 years ago, you had some row crop and you had two cows and eight pigs. But now it's like, if you have anything, you got like goats or sheep. And that's becoming more and more common. Yeah, you know, if you look at sheep numbers nationally, we're ahead 50 years ago probably. And then there's a sharp decline and it's been pretty stagnant to slightly decreasing. Iowa, we're ninth in the nation, 10th in the nation. Hmm. But when you get some wow. of these. Smaller scale farms, I think they have more interest in, you know, small ruminants like sheep, goats. Yeah. Um, and well, then, they've got more time because they're not in the field as much, and and well, more quote unquote time. But also, they have uh, uh, some of them don't want to get another job to supplement the farm mortgage, so they do sheep. Yeah, and sheep prices, we had a little blip here, you know, after COVID and all that. But you can do it on a small scale and, and be profitable. You know, if one cow dies, you're out a couple grand. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. A <laughs> little less, a little less expensive learning curve. Yeah, yeah, and lots of different markets for it is the key with that. So. Man, so you do that? Do you do the wool? Yeah, I mean, my sheep have wool, and uh, I don't prioritize it, though, because commodity wool, you lose lose money on, basically. It costs more to shear than you get from the, the wool. Um, huh. If you're interested mm. in the fiber market, the hand spinner, you can do well, but I don't have the time for that, nor do I prioritize keeping my sheep clean enough for it. So, so. basically, you're when you're bored, will you, when was the last time you sold wool? Uh, I got five cents a pound. Oh, my goodness. And it. So let's say the average sheep gets you eight eight pounds. Yeah, and it costs cents. you five to six bu- or six bucks to shear. So it's a losing proposition. So that's crazy. That, that's so you, why a lot of the small scale newer people get hair sheep. So that's you why you are like uh, never again. Why will not be shearing this wool? Oh, I mean you have to shear them. It keeps growing, right? Oh, I mean, it's kind of like your hair. At least you know I know I don't have a lot of hair, but I have to cut it every <laughs> now and then so I don't look too bald. So <laughs> oh man. That is crazy. So what about like alpaca then? Is that a totally different market there or is that kind of the same? I don't know. I think about the alpaca world, that's probably more hobby type thing in my opinion. Sorry if that insults any alpaca people. No, no. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the lamb, sheep market, it's it's primarily meat based, you know. Sure. So, yeah. Man, because so, alpaca, right now, alpaca poop is like a big thing. It like... <laughs> I guess in the Des Moines farmers market, I had a friend tell me that they counted four, and they didn't even want four different vendors that sold Manure. alpaca poop. Yeah, just for fertilizer. Yeah, yeah. They it's not just... like one of those weird coffee roasters that you know have the, <laughs> oh, man, have like the, the cat. cat yeah. Oh no. Who in their right mind? You know, those people have toxoplasmosis. Yeah. Who? <laughs> it's not that it's <laughs> yeah, brain worms. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from the cat poop. <laughs> That's right. It's not that it's bought. It, it's not that it's uh, in the marketplace now. It's like who discovered that it could be. That's yeah. what I wanted. Can you know. imagine that guy like sitting there? He's like sniffing a cat <laughs> <He's> turd. Like, <laughs> this is probably still good. What do you got there? Yeah. <laughs> no, what it was? It was like a it was like a Dutchman whose cat got into his coffee, and he's like, "Well, I'm out of <laughs> I'm out of my coffee budget this month, so oh, I'm using man. this." <laughs> Take that personally. I am. Yeah, a large percentage of me is Dutch. I know. Amen. Brethren of the clogs. <laughs> <laughs> Did you listen to a, We interviewed, um, do you know Valvin Coton? She's, yeah. Yeah. So we interviewed her for um, about Tulip Time in the History of Pella. Fascinated. I, I, I spent half a year in the Netherlands and I worked at a tulip farm. Wow. Really? Boom. But those aren't native. No. But, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, corn's not native either, but we grow yeah. it here, Actually, right? Corn's so. not even like a species that existed yeah, 300 te- years ago. Teosinte and some supposed mystery cross i don't i think like most that. of the if you i think it's teosinte is what they think it is basically all now so they, really? they, there's no they don't think there was pos- potentially another cross there yeah there's uh if you're on the interwebs their internets um there's a, a pretty good yeah video about they think it's eight thousand years ago and basically just a couple couple three four big mutations 
just in ta- just in Teosinte itself. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's right for anyone. Well, oh, here's sorry, here's here's sorry. my totally unresearched opinion. Oh dear. <laughs> Wo- cup grass. You ever look at that? Yeah. It looks exactly like a little like like a baby baby corn. And a uh baby baby. Corn. And just think and that that's from the China, s- right? The seed head you're saying? Yeah, yeah, that's from okay. China, right? And I so uh just think what that opens up about, you know, man's uh Man's uh, hear- migration around the planet. If you have if you have a Chinese species crossing with a South American grass, and or Central American grass, right? Ken's famous and for sorry. This is totally. Is, is he I'm, a not, I'm not being. I'm not being. Guy? <laughs> I, was, I was just gonna say you should use theory on reptilians. It's crazy. <laughs> no, don't go there. My goodness, Nick. Holy cow. No, I'm just. I'm mostly being facetious. But it, woolly cup grass does look like corn. Well, especially when it's, in, it's coming right coming out of the whorl. Interesting. All right, I will try and take note of that. Ken's very familiar with woolly cup grass. Yeah, uh, we eat a lot of woolly cup we, grass. We fight it here, <laughs> which is that thing like defies the law of physics because the weight of the like different stems that come up compared to its like half inch yeah. root, like there's like no root. It just like sets on the well, ground, and, and it's, it's got like such a long, thin stem, and then a heavy seed head on it. Yeah. yeah. That's when uh, that's what happened in Genesis three, the fall of man. Woolly cup grass just immediately appeared. <laughs> that's what happened. My goodness. Along with Venice Mallow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a rough one. What uh, really? You have Venice Mallow problems? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It is a beautiful flower yeah, it's though. It's a hibiscus family. Yeah. The Clayton and I were just talking about that this morning. The coloring of Venice Mallow is just so pleasing. Like the petals are just they're not like a loud, like very stark white. They're more of a cream, but then the the center of the flower is just very vibrant, uh, deep red and and uh, kind of a golden yellow and orange. You know, it's just you like write poetry. Hey, and <laughs> writes. He writes. Okay, well there you go. Audio Mostly book. romantic novels, actually. Yeah, romance novels. Okay, he's a big fan. Nick's my Ode biggest woolly cup dress. Nick's my biggest review person on uh, Amazon. <laughs> Oh man, where where did we go wrong in this podcast? <laughs> this is a great, this is a fun conversation. So Clayton talks about, um, you know, you uh, you emphasized a lot in in your classes the importance of soil. I gotta imagine that that interest came somewhere along the line. How how did you, or did did was it just more of a thing of necessity? Like, hey, if I'm going to teach you anything about plants, you got to know about soil because that's that's what makes plants happen. Yeah, it's a limited resource. And, and you know, so many... Here, here's my pet peeve. Um, you know, you read these plant tags. Mm-hmm. And it talks about full sun, shade, water. doesn't even talk about soil type, yeah. soil pH. And, and, and you just look in the, like in the commercial in terms of consumer horticulture, so landscapers and so many plant issues in people's yard it's not a disease like powdery mildew i mean we have powdery mildew issues don't get me wrong it's wrong plant wrong place because of the soil Mm. or the soil is compacted the wrong ph salt issues i mean if you have really good soil it it just solves a lot of problems now Mm -hmm. the greenhouse world we don't deal with soil so you gotta manage them even more but I mean, that's where it starts. You got a healthy soil you're sitting in pretty good. And in most people's backyards, you know, a bulldozer moved all that soil around. And so it's compacted, yeah. it's in the wrong order. It's, it's, uh, and that's not something that gets solved overnight. It's, it takes mm. a long time to change all that. So that's the starting point. Right. So yeah. that's fascinating. Has that affected a lot of our, um, that, I never thought of it the way you just said that with the ground being worked so much it's been resorted. The soils have been resorted in a way that, like you said, is the wrong order. Has that affected our, you know, we, we're we're always talking about runoff issues, you know, the, all the nutrient load going into our water systems and, and, you know, sediment dumping into our, our creeks and so forth. Is that, do you think, does that play a significant part of that? I mean, through plowing through, you know, earth moving everything else, you know, uh, your average row crop field, which I do some row cropping, is probably better off than your average subdivision soil. Wow. Just just because it's in its natural order, ABC horizon, 
And yeah, we, we tend to use some large equipment, but you know, we, we, we try not to, mm-hmm. but again, you go to a new subdivision that they're completely re-sculpting all that. Mm. And sometimes they don't, I mean, I've taken a lot of soil samples in, in, you know, some of those places you might have two inches of topsoil, that's it. And then right underneath it, it's, it's pure clay. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing where, again, I love native plants and me and my colleague, when we taught at DMAC, we'd promote it, but it's, it's tough to say that big blue stems, big blue stem, excuse me, where it's, you know, native to six foot deep soil is going to thrive when you have two inches of topsoil. Yeah. So that's where that tough situation is. And, you know, if you have very little topsoil, more water is going to run off. So yeah, it's, it's probably one of the underappreciated things about, you know, when people build a house or whatever, um, older parts of town because we didn't have bulldozers a hundred years ago right, yeah. tend to have awesome soil. Like around my house against nothing I did. It's the house is built first in 1880 something. It's got awesome soil around it. And so, you know, people drive by someone's yard. I want that tree. Well, if it's an old part of town, like a pin Oak might do well, but mm-hmm. in a newer part of town where the pH is super high and it's compacted, it, it may not do well at all. So, that's one of interesting. those pet peeves of mine, you know, you really, before you choose a plant, you should make sure the soil's adapted to it because you can't change that. How do you, so you can like see that then when you're going down the road, can't you? When you're looking at like... X-ray wow. vision. Well, yeah, but I mean like you're looking at what's going on above the ground, right? Yeah. You're looking I mean, at the health of plants and you're like, man, yeah. I could just, I can see the start. That is so interesting. I mean, a lot of nutrient deficiencies you can't just solve with throwing fertilizer right. on, you know, like... Pin oaks, iron chlorosis, you got to change the pH of the soil. River birch, beautiful native plant. It's not going to do well in high pH soils like a lot of people's backyards are. So. What, um, What's really like someone, someone buys a house and they're like, I want to plant some stuff. And they say, but I heard on the Prairie Farm podcast <laughs> that <laughs> well, you, you got a million view, yeah, downloads yeah. Uh, an episode or something. No, no, oh, no, okay. no nothing like that. Nothing like that. We, we get, uh, we, we get more than I was expecting a year okay. ago to be getting. Um, but, uh, they, and they say, I need to figure out what the heck I got in my backyard for soil. What are they doing? How do they do that? Take a soil sample. And, and the thing with the soil sample, and it tells you the chemical, so how much P and K and all that doesn't tell you if it's compacted you can buy compaction probes and all that. But if I bought a house in a, you know, I would not right away plant, I would wait a year, see, you know, Hey, where does the water sit? Right. Mm. So do you want a tall grass prairie where there's water sitting six inches, you know, mm. probably not the best spot for a lot of our well-drained prairie plant type mm-hmm. situations. I mean, some of the sedges might do good in those situations. So I would, I know a lot of people that they buy a property right away. They want to do X, Y, Z. I'd wait, you know, see how that water moves or doesn't move. Take a soil sample or two. It's 25 bucks. It's cheap, you know, yeah. to send into a lab and then you can check the pH and, you know, if the pH is high, there's things you can do to lower it, but um, that would kind of limit what you plant, you know. Yeah. Do you, yeah. you want to spend the money to change the pH? If not, then you got to choose plants adapted to that pH range. So yeah. Our friend Skip Sly is doing a pump fist or a uh, fist pump right now in his, uh, probably his uh, tractor cab or skid loader <laughs> cab or whatever he's in right now. But, but he is big on that. People get the cart ahead of the horse and uh, just start throwing seed down on their project without knowing what their soil needs first. Yeah. Even in the fruit side, like I'll get an email, you know, Hey, it's March. I want to plant X, Y, Z. Let's say it's a vineyard perhaps. Um, what, what do I need to do? I, I always generally recommend wait, right? Let's do it right. Let's get a soil sample. Let's check the pH, make sure the site's prep before you plant, because I'll just give you the vineyard example. You know, you should be in production in three years, if you don't do things correctly, it might take you four, maybe five. So if you just wait a year, mm-hmm. make sure everything's done correctly, sometimes you're still ahead just yeah, by mm-hmm. waiting. You know, pump yeah, the brakes a little point. bit. Let's make yeah. sure. Because if you're growing plenty of plants, I mean, number one, it's expensive. I mean, you guys aren't going to sell your seed for nothing. Nope. And, you know, it's not like it's turf or it's cheap seed. So, yeah. you know, same thing with trees. They're not cheap. So, yeah wait a little bit i'm not trying to say hey don't support your local businesses but do it right so you're not disappointed Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Man, that's good. Wait, wait, see what's on your soil and test it and, and figure out what's in your soil. Um, and then you were saying another one is water flow where yeah. that's a big one. Well, that made me think of, uh, someone that, uh, my dad, uh, knew, um, he was friends with this family and they always wanted to have a, uh, I think it was blueberry farm and they put their life savings into setting up this farm and, and, oh, uh, they, man. they, uh, you know, spent, uh, you know, hundreds of hours setting everything up. And, uh, I think they did some, you know, row crop <clears throat> on the side too, as well. But this was like going to be their new, their new like thing that they they did as a family and would would grow old doing. Well, I don't know if you guys remember the drought of 2012. Oh, okay, that was the year they planted, and oh. and uh, their their irrigation lines, the the water table dropped below their uh, well, you know, their artesian well that was that was pump drawn from that, and uh, everything lost and. Uh, so all their life savings, you know, just gone because, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's not just on them, but it illustrates the point of, you got to know what you got to have a, you know, the the rest of the world is crashing too, because you run out of water <laughs> type water solution. Yeah. Not, not just a really dry summer comes along and, and blueberries have a very specific soil pH they need too. So, yeah. And that may have been part of it too, you know, man. So you were at uh, DMAC. You were hanging out, teaching some horticulture. And yep, just hanging out. Yep. Just hanging out. Not doing, <laughs> not doing much. Not doing, not working hard. No, just hanging out. Just chilling. That's uh, that's what Clayton said. No, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Uh, but, uh, and then you went to the ISU Extension yep. service, and you work with uh, fruit. Which is, this is not a state that you think, man, you know where we get the best fruit? Iowa. What, uh, so you you said grapes. You deal with grapes. I I work with all fruits, but I work with a lot of the small fruit. Okay. A lot more. What are are the small fruit that hang out in Iowa? Yeah, grapes, aronia. There's some blueberry growers, strawberry, raspberry. Um, So, I mean, most of it's direct... The non, you know, the raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, it's, it's almost all direct to consumer. Um, and so, you know, you can be small scale and still do okay. And just because if you're retailing them for, you're selling for retail price versus wholesale, you know, you, oh, you yeah. got more of a margin. And a lot of people want that agritourism experience, you know, the the picture at the farm and give, get their kids out there to look at grapes and aronia it's primarily a processing market and so really the limitations there are you know how much wine is sold dictates how many grapes can be grown um because yeah there's only so much market for that type of thing Mm -hmm. and uh there's about a thousand acres of apples in the states too i don't do as much with them my colleague works a lot with the apple growers but Hmm. really i mean there's a lot more potential for for fruits in Iowa. I mean, we, we obviously have climate limitations, right. but, um, I mean, people eat, so you can yeah. produce basically. So, yeah, that's fascinating. So most of it's going to be like farmer's markets or, or selling like a, you pick or a farm kind of. stand, you pick. Um, yeah, uh, some of them find, you know, farmer's market is, is a lot of time. And so mm. I think some of them use it as marketing for people to go onto their farm. Uh, so yeah. once they have a good name for themselves, I mean, it's farmer, you know, marketing is, if you're doing the farmer's market thing, half your time is the marketing, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. just, it's a lot of time commitment. Yeah. Um, Cause we would love to go to farmer's markets and sell what we sell, like especially Iowa city and Des Moines. <clears throat> um, but uh, just like, being either being out there ourselves every saturday morning for you know six hours you know an hour set up be there yeah it's kind of like uh it's kind of like being a car a car salesman you got to be there when everyone's off work yeah yeah and that's that's tough yeah man so prairie is not a thing that you go through i mean you eat a blueberry and then you have to eat again the next day so yeah that that's real because right now it, it is a little like it's a little sexy to put you know, prairie in your backyard yeah, and pollinator gardens are popular. And yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People really want to do it. I've heard, um, 
you know, talk in government uh, agencies about pushing more on uh, pushing more habitat, getting more CRP and stuff like that. And then you've got the Tallgrass Prairie Center who is saying, hey, let's not just pay attention to more. Let's get quality. Let's let's have, you know, better mixes. Yep, yep, exactly. So, and then, and I was talking to a guy who been doing it longer than I think anyone else in Iowa. Um, he was growing and he said, I, I tell people never chase the species, the native species that are quote unquote cool right now. Cause it takes three years to get uh, a yep. harvest off of them. He said, it probably won't just figure out what you're good at growing and grow them in the highs and in the lows and save when you're in the highs and, you know, be careful when you're in the lows. And, uh, and that's kind of what we do. Although I think we grow too many species. Poor Kent over there breaking his back. <laughs> He's got to grease the combine in between every single harvest. Uh, not every, but a lot poor of them. Poor guy. Yeah. yeah. I like it, though. It's it's job security. Yeah. <laughs> yeah how, many, else is job how many security? species do you guys grow? We are in the – it fluctuates each year, so that's why I don't know the exact. But I think uh, right around 47. Okay. Yeah, well, and uh, how many we grow versus how many we get a harvest off of every yeah, year. Yeah, that changes too. Well. Yeah, some years we just have to outright mow a field because uh, the you know weed pressure is so bad coming into that year. You know, a inter- really interesting thing happened with uh, uh, our swamp milkweed field. Uh, Carol had talked about last year. He's, he was like, yep, we're probably going to need to uh, – this will probably be the last year. And I was looking at it and I'm like, really? Cause we, I mean, there were definitely some sparse areas in there, but I'd say, wouldn't you guess there was at least 2,500 plants in that half acre. I couldn't field? put a number on plants. Well, I would guess probably 2,500 plants. And I kid you not this spring when, uh, when we went to reassess that field, 20 plants on that half acre. I mean, just, just totally bottomed out like that. And uh, so some years, you know, you lose a species because of that, and that's when you got to have seed stock for future, future planting. Hoxie is the plant whisperer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, but he, and a lot of people hear the word perennial, they think they live forever too, and they, they yeah, don't. that's true. Yeah. They yeah. don't. Yeah. It's not yeah. a tree, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. That that's another thing because I, I tell people if you manage it really well, I I would plan on like. 15 years of like a good prairie stand not individual species they kind of poison themselves out yeah. earlier but especially great like the rudbeckia yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah the rudbeckia what's another one that uh milkweeds <clears throat> um the sclepius or yeah. they just don't last very long can of wild rice seems to get choked out yeah. eventually too it does yep. good right away yeah so that yeah that and virginia beef. wild rye when you put them in uh when you put those in a mix the first thing to show up the first year, they hang out for three years real strong, and then they just, like, poop out. Um, but there's a lot of talk about... But they replant themselves, too, you know, elsewhere yeah. in the in the planting. You know, you still have... We don't have, we don't have the wildlife uh, that we once had, of course, on the prairie to help, you know, redistribute seed. But um, we still have some, and yeah. you'll find it, you know, the, the wind will blow it somewhere. You'll have runoff d- deposited elsewhere in the planting where it can find a new load of nutrients and that, that hey, kind of thing i do have a question for you guys so crp contracts you have that mid-practice management you mm-hmm. burn or do a disc i don't know what other options there were i think at one point it was a glyphosate application i think so yeah i don't know if that's still what Wild. is your preferred mid-contract management burn well i mean it depends on what what it is you know what's your biggest management issue you know if you have like really heavy pressure from usually generally speaking it's going to be the the uh like sweet clover the cool season grasses or Brum. or yeah some kind reed of canary. yeah clover that, that you don't want reed canary would probably be number one and fire helps with with uh reed canary but probably better for to eradicate Reed canary is a chemical burn down, unfortunately. Yeah, and even so if it, you know, it just it just depends on what what your needs are. You know, it, maybe your management could be, wow, we this was a pollinator mix, and all we have left is a little bit of gray headed comb flower, some sawtooth uh, um, sunflower. Uh, sunflower, and some goldenrod. You know, that's a really low quality 
Forbes stand in that pollinator mix, well, now you might be looking at doing some interseeding and or, or switching up your burn uh, schedule. Maybe going to a fall a fall time burn, which is risky because what's Oof. what's CRP surrounded by? Standing corn, standing ethanol. Well, then you got nothing, <laughs> nothing for the wildlife all winter. Either. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I'm gonna interject about that Michigan State native plant website we looked yeah. at yeah, beforehand. Yeah. That if you want, if you're interested in checking out native plants, highly rated for natural predators and bees and stuff, Google Michigan State native plants, and they have a list of the native plants that are most highly attracted to, highly attractive to those critters yeah mm-hmm. and repellent or or attractive to the the what was it called natural, natural enemies, enemies yeah yeah mm. but there's another great website too that um i think the state you probably know about this one randy i think it's the state of missouri runs it grownative.org mm. that it's not it doesn't have well maybe it does but i the thing that i was most impressed by with it is um it like helps you plan your plantings Hmm. so whether you know it's a a giant prairie planting or maybe it's you know pollinator patch in your yard maybe it's a a wetland area that you want to plant it helps you plan that out and so that's another that's another good resource too yeah also i want to point out that uh all of your scenarios still included burning with uh fire and i think uh why you feel like I said you were no, wrong? No, no, I just, I just. He's a pyro. Nick knows, <laughs> Nick knows what he's talking about. People and invite me out. No, 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 no. It's just I feel like fire can be over or can be kind of overlooked. People like ah, I don't really. I, but oh yeah, it has, got, we got to. It's got to be in there at some point. Yeah, for you sure. Have fire. We, we've had to burn and disc, and I, I prefer the burn because I, I was, I had a disc. We have a 150 acre track that I had to disc and segments of three and i can see last year where the disc went and the sweet clover is, is really right it right in that path oh yeah. I, and i think they might be taking it out of the mid uh oh, it's still on ours yeah because but now it's mowing right isn't the there's a option for mowing it instead every third year or something like that maybe I, what i can see though is that some of the um rudbeckia has popped in those spots too, or is that disturbance? Oh, yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. No, that's, that's, that's all good. It's practical information. The Rebecca, the like black eyed Susan, it's a biannual. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, it fizzles out, but the, we actually really like it in the mixes mostly because it shows the farmer, Hey, something is coming up. Yeah. Cause it comes up right, right away. Get some pretty, flowers. Out yeah, there. Good indicator yeah. species. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That, um, partridge pea. There's another, one, uh, a wild bergamot usually comes up pretty quick. So we like to get those cause they're real pretty. When, when they clean the ditches out around here, the partridge pea is just thick that first. Year oh yeah. Years. Oh yeah. It's been thick this year, but something else about partridge pea is you can watch it move in fields over mm. years. So you'll watch a big old patch, and then uh, two years later, the patch will be moved huh. 50 feet in one direction um, based off of how the seed was dropped the past time. Yeah. It, Good it's food source, too, for wildlife. Yep, legumes. We actually um, we had, I'll just say, a gentleman reach out wanting a, a food plot um, for, he was a contractor working for someone else in consulting and reached out. And uh, we we made a new food plot mix. I think it should be on the website now. But the idea was that it was heavy forbs. So it was yeah. not quite a pollinator mix. It's a 50-50, mm-hmm. uh, 50% grass, 50% forbs. But then we added extra legumes. The problem is most legumes are pretty expensive. The yeah. only <laughs> cheap ones are, the only like comparable ones is Illinois bundle flower and then partridge peas borderline. It's still mm-hmm. pretty expensive. But then... White wild indigo we put in there, which is great. If you went just white wild indigo and you planted one acre, that that one acre would cost you over four thousand dollars. What about lead plant? Is that inexpensive? Yeah, that's a, uh, no, it, that's no pretty, it's that's expensive. expensive. Oh, really? Yeah, it it's that's another good legume though. It's a great, not great root system. I like too. it. Oh yeah, yeah. It, but it's not per pound. When we think of yeah, how expensive it's per because ounce or it, seed or yeah. well, it's yeah per seed per square foot. So every we do what is the price for every 43,560 seeds, right? That's how many square foot are in an acre. So if you want one seed per square foot. And so we want to hit 
with Forbes, you want to hit like three, two to four dollars. That that's considered a fairly well priced Forb. Um, well, the cheapest legumes like eight bucks, and the most per. expensive per seed per square foot. And you want forty of those per square foot. So and like white wild indigo, I think is like one hundred and ninety dollars. So it wouldn't be for it'd be close to eight thousand dollars per acre if you were just to plant white wild indigo, and uh, most people. I would say basically everybody is not super into that. So <laughs> we don't, we, yeah, we just sell little sprinkles here and there. Yeah. But deer love it. Mm-hmm. Turkey love it. Pheasants, quail. Pheasants, quail. Quail. I think quail is the underappreciated native yeah. game bird. Yeah. I love quail. I've been seeing quite a bit this, this uh, summer. And uh, this, uh, we love pheasants forever. Um, they, I think, sponsored a new app called Bobscapes that just rolled out like, I don't know, maybe a month ago. And uh, so if you hear, you know, Bob White's in the, uh, which Nick is going to demonstrate right now. What? Oh, uh, <laughs> oh, that was good. That was really good. <laughs> that was, I can't. I will call back and forth yeah, with no. them sometimes in my, That's impressive. My now, have you tricked the uh, Merlin uh, bird app? The the no, Cornell I, University. I, I'm, not an, I'm not an app guy. Oh. <laughs> I have worked so hard with all my like bird whistles that I can sort of do to get the Merlin app to be like, oh, that's a Bob White quail. No. No, no bird identified. <laughs> can you do can, can you do Turtus migratorius? No. Do you know what that is? No. It's the Robin. <laughs> I just like the name. Oh, <laughs> the Robin's got the Robin Migratorius. That sounds like a dinosaur. The Robin's Turtus migratorius. Tur- Turtus migratorius. Migrating turd. Uh <laughs> Uh, don't the, check that again. Yeah, uh, a robin call is actually like very hard to. Oh, I I couldn't even Sorry. attempt to do it. Yeah, but I can whistle breathing out or breathing in. That's pretty good. It's kind of like a monkey, in my yeah. opinion. But <laughs> so 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 of all these things that you've done, you've done teaching college students. You've done uh, you've done sheep, done row crop. You've handled natives. What's the hardest? What, what what do you think is the hardest form of farming? And then is it harder oh, than teaching? Uh, the, the, uh, the greenhouse world is probably the most challenging because those plants are 100% dependent on you. Hmm. Man. I can't work, get away from them. Well, they, I mean, I, I worked in the wholesale greenhouse industry right out of, I went to Dort and then Michigan State and then I was in the greenhouse world. And Were you at DeYoung's? I, yeah. Nice. I, I prayed for cloudy weather on the weekends. <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, if it's a sunny day, you might have to water two times on a cloudy day zero. And on a semi-cloudy day, you're running back and forth. You don't know. And it's just tough because those plants are 100% dependent on you. They have a shelf life. You know, once they're a certain size, you got to sell them or dump them or pinch them. And the consumer is very have us a little tolerance for poor quality because literally that plant is right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and a poinsettia or Easter lily is worth nothing a day before Christmas or Easter. Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. have to, you dump them basically. And yeah. so, um, you're, you're, it's just, a it's, it's a very fickle market and greenhouses are expensive. I've, yeah. I've heard that, uh, every plant, uh, ha- every time you buy a plant at a greenhouse, you're actually paying for three that that they've uh, they've put out. Uh, whether because so- they have a huge percentage that don't sell and they dump a huge percentage somewhere along the growing process that got thrown out because they did they didn't make it. You know, so um, I don't know how true that is, but I I heard it's real fickle. I mean, we got friends at uh, um, Nick's greenhouse in uh, in Pella, and he talks about it. He's like, yeah, like. You can make pretty good money. You could also go bankrupt really yeah. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Anything time you have a perishable product, yeah. Well, I'll just look at the wine grape industry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, once all the tanks are full, there's no more space for those grapes versus you know corn. I mean, I mean, unfortunately, our prices are not looking great this this fall. But there's all you can only sell it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. and yeah. some of these specialty things you can only sell so many grapes when all the tanks in Iowa are full or you can yeah. only sell so many poinsettias because only so many people buy them and there's not a, like a salvage market if you will type mm-hmm. thing man 
when I was in middle school, we used to do that for a fundraiser. We used to go out and there'd be a bunch of different fundraiser groups and you had your zip tie color and you put that zip tie on the bucket and you'd pick those grapes, put them in the bucket, depending <laughs> on how many, or I think they weighed the buckets, depending on how much weight there was for your group zip ties. That's how much money. I think it was, um, uh, yeah. Larry Ingbers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The Ingbers. And we go out there because they got they had the funkiest looking combines, you know, that basically have like a line. They have like two sides to them and they go around an aisle mm. and they collect the grapes. But they had one pretty decent grape farm that didn't fit. It was made before these combines were sized. So they had just groups come and pick them out every year. Wow. If, if you go to Iowa Fruit Guy on Instagram, I have videos of the machine harvesters. Man. There you go. What a guy. <laughs> Iowa, Iowa, Iowa Fruit, Fruit Guy. guy. Yeah. We're going to be sharing I am so not stuff. a self-promoter, but, you know, I mean, if you get invited to a neighbor's podcast, you roll, right? Oh, That's yeah. right. Man. Well, we, we know you have a time frame. We really appreciate you hanging out with us today. Is there anything, if you could change one thing about the agriculture or horticulture or uh, academic, agriculture academic world, what, what would you change? Oh, uh, you know, my one of my pet peeves is in, invasive, invasive plants, invasive pests, and us overusing them, you know. Mm. Um, I, yeah, just unfortunately, a lot of pests get moved around, sometimes with unintended consequences with firewood or buying and selling plants. But, well, I'd say one of my current pet peeves and we all have plenty of pet peeves oh, is yeah. i just look in the landscape and there's so many invasive plants that we're still planting if you look at calorie pear aka brad bradford pear uh, <clears throat> you just go to the iowa city area that it's, it's just in the woods really bad um japanese barbary burning bush is invasive in a lot of places and 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 we just we tend to ignore those situations and they're still sold and and then the other one is the diversity of plants in the landscape. You know, uh, you talked a lot of garden centers. They they want to sell diverse trees because they've seen this emerald ash borer crash, and we had the Dutch elm disease crash. And mm-hmm. but yet, everyone wants to plant an autumn blaze maple, mm-hmm. which is it's just a cultivar. So they're all clones of each other. So it's bad enough that it's one species. It, it's a hybrid actually, and it's just one clone. And and so. You know, appreciate the nuances in plants rather than just one thing, and yeah. I think that's why I, I'm 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 a brethren of the prairie with the Prairie Farm Podcast at Hoxie's hey, Native Seeds. That's right, <laughs> love it. I I think I actually texted Hoxie like ten years ago. I said, "Hey, I got some world milkweed in my pasture. You should come collect." And so really? someone did. Yeah, so is I don't that where a world milkweed came from? I can't be. remember if it's hand collected or from you and I. You and I has this project. The Tallgrass Prairie Center has a project where they collect it from different zones, and then they have a zone for your eco- for your area. And someone came and collected it. Now they may have dumped it afterwards, and Coxie just sent someone just to appease me. You know, I don't know. But. <laughs> Well, uh, he doesn't really operate that way. I bet I wouldn't be surprised yeah, no. if that's our. Yeah, we like it. We should ask. So that, that would have been a remnant, right? But, yeah, I was in a pasture that's never been tilled. Yeah, that's so that's awesome. pretty cool. You got anything else remnant out there? You know, I don't. But my parents in the kind of Cherokee Larrabee area, Northwest Iowa, they yeah. own they own like a prairie remnant that's virgin, never been. Wow. wow right off the little Sioux river you ever gone in and counted species how many you can find i haven't i'm i go deer hunting there in muzzleloader season so i'll be up there in a couple weeks a couple, you should do actually, that actually more than a couple weeks but it's you know they've had to fight the red cedar invading that they've uh, had to do a lot of work on but it's, it's it's i love i love those spots so yeah yeah really yeah. incredible that is really really cool well we really appreciate what you do now and your time when you were teaching because he was forming minds. He was crafting <laughs> minds. And we know here at the Prairie Farm Podcast, conservation happens one mind at a time. <laughs> <laughs>